Thank you for your questions, and now our event is over. Thank you. President Zelensky of Ukraine there and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz holding a press conference after two hours of good talks. And I'm quoting the German Chancellor there. A whole range of issues discussed. I think President Zelensky's line, which was, we share vision, the vision of a peaceful settlement of the conflict pointing out, too, that the German Chancellor will go to Moscow tomorrow to meet Vladimir Putin and will present a common position of the EU and not just Germany's side. Uh, interesting qualification, I think, coming from President Zelensky and the German Chancellor on NATO as well. He said, look, it remains part of their future ambitions in case there was any confusion after the weekend's comments from the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK. But it's not the absolute goal. And the German Chancellor then said, look, uh, it's not really an issue now. And it's strange that the Russians keep pointing to the issue of NATO membership as being a prevalent issue today, which I thought was quite interesting. Also reiterating support that they remain closely aligned to Ukraine and have provided $2 billion worth of support since 2014. And that support will continue. Um, pressed also on what happens if we do see further escalation? We expect to see closer steps towards de-escalation from Russia and that the German Chancellor will reiterate that with President Putin tomorrow. He was pushed in the Q&A. What happens if we don't see that and what will be the response? He said, if Ukraine's sovereignty is violated, we will know what to do. He was asked what that looks like. He said, look, we've prepared a package and we can act at any time. Fred Plekin is in Moscow for us. Fred, I know you were listening into that. Your observations on that too. I think a crucial point made there on NATO, just to clear up confusion, if nothing else. Mm. I think I think that was really a crucial point. It was quite interesting to hear Olaf Scholz saying that as he was standing next to Volodymyr Zelensky, and essentially right after Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, the president of Ukraine said, "Yes, look, we're still striving for NATO membership. That he believes that it would bring um, uh, you know integrity and 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 peace to Ukraine and certainly stability as well." And then Olaf Scholz, right on the back of that. Uh, saying that right now it's simply something that's not in the cards, it's not on the table, and therefore he wonders why Russia is making such an issue of it uh, at this point in time. That certainly um, also, to me, very much stood out. The other lines from Olaf Scholz are certainly lines that we've heard before, especially the fact that the Germans keep pointing out that they're one of the biggest, or the biggest, as they put it, single donor of financial aid uh, to the Ukrainians. That came uh, on the heels of a question about military aid to Ukraine, which is certainly something that's been a bit of a uncomfortable topic for Olaf Scholz, the Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin, for instance, pressing the issue, saying that Ukraine needs defensive weapons and wants Germany to provide some of those defensive weapons. The Germans have continuously been saying that they are not going to be providing uh, any sort of arms to Ukraine, saying that they don't, uh, they don't export arms into crisis areas. That's been a big topic. It was really one of the reasons why some people in uh, Ukraine certainly, you know, were a bit disappointed uh, by uh, the, the German government in the past couple of days. So that's another thing that really stood out. Then also, what would happen if there was a further invasion of Ukraine? Olaf Scholz obviously leaving out uh, Nord Stream 2, something that he's consistently been doing as well. And, and this visit uh, to, uh, to President Zelensky there is so important uh, for Olaf Scholz as tomorrow he'll be here in Moscow and visiting with Vladimir Putin. And we did hear some interesting remarks uh, from the Kremlin today as well with uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in a meeting with Vladimir Putin saying that he believed that there was still a chance for, demop for, for diplomacy 
um, after a question from Vladimir Putin. So it certainly looks as though the Russians looking to continuously talk. And another sort of nugget that we picked up that I think is also quite interesting, Vladimir Putin also today meeting with his defense minister. And the defense minister there saying that some of the large-scale exercises that have been going on uh, around the area of Ukraine, some of those are coming to an end, some of those will soon come to an end. Whether or not that means that maybe some sort of pulling back of troops could be in the cards, what the messaging, the signaling there is uh, from uh, the Russian side, certainly very difficult to interpret, but definitely something to watch with, with some interest, Julia. Yeah, it's such a great point, Fred. And he was pushed on that. What are those clear steps of, of de-escalation? And we have to wait and see if we hear anything from tomorrow's um, discussions, of course, too. On that point, Sam Kiley joins us now from the Ukrainian-Russian border. Sam, I know you've been looking at what's happening there just outside Kharkiv in, in Ukraine. What's your sense based on the intel that we got from the United States and what we heard once again in this press conference about the military buildup and the threat, the current threat that it presents? Well, President Zelensky, Julia, in his phone call with President Biden yesterday, asked for more uh, financial and for more military assistance because in the view of the Ukrainians, and it's shared by a lot of analysts, the international response to the Russian invasion of, and Russian-backed invasion of, uh, or, or secession, it's largely of Donbass, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the international response to that was pretty pusillanimous in terms of supporting Ukraine with any kind of military uh, equipment that could help make a difference or even help to defend the country. Now, that said, I've just come down from the border uh, opposite Belograd, the Russian city, where the uh, First Guards tank army, a whole army, uh, which on paper is almost as big as the British army, is concentrating, according to our analysis uh, of uh, Russian uh, propaganda that they've been putting out, but also social media, on that border with tanks, multiple rocket launching systems, Iskander missiles, uh, helicopters have recently arrived in the last 24 hours. That is what is being uh, information coming to us from what's going on in Russia. On this side of the border, though, Julia, you wouldn't know that this was a country uh, fearing to be on the brink of war. Here in Kharkiv, life has gone on completely quietly. At the border, there were trucks waiting to cross uh, and crossing into Russia. Russia. There wasn't a lot of traffic coming uh, the other way. Local people there who are all overwhelmingly Russian-speaking were all saying, look, uh, we live next to the Russians. We're not that fussed by it. Some rude the demise of the Soviet era. And the younger people, we, a person I spoke to, said, ag agreed with his president that the, the real issue here was panic, uh, that panic was affecting the economy and instability, of course, delivers from the Ukrainian perspective, kind of what Russia is looking for. Now, what is Russia looking for? Is it really looking, Julia, for a promise that Ukraine can never join NATO? Why would it be looking for that promise when it is already sponsoring the occupation of Crimea and it is sponsoring Russian back, the, the, it is backing rebels in the Donbass under NATO's regulations? The rules are a little bit vague here, but there is no real possibility of any nation joining NATO when it's in a hot dispute over territory, because that would automatically trigger a war. So there's, the, as long as Russia has a foothold militarily in Ukraine, which it does in the form of the annexation of Crimea, it's completely off the cards that it could join NATO. So what really is going on here is the question that the Ukrainians are asking themselves. Is this really about not seeing, from the Russian perspective, a successful pro-Western democracy on their doorstep? And if that's the case, then any kind of amount of diplomatic manoeuvring may not solve necessarily 
the desire to destabilize Ukraine in the longer term. What form that destabilization takes, though, is very much open to interpretation, as Fred was saying. Yes, and it's just a, arguably then a pretext to maintain troops where they're positioned at this moment in time. Fred, come back in, because I just want to ask you, to the point that Sam was making there about panic, and it's something that President Zelensky has done his best mm. in recent weeks to play down and say it's the last thing we want, and actually it plays into Russia's hands. He was asked about his wife and where his wife is located. Obviously, after a weekend where we've seen certain nations removing their employees from, from embassies, we've seen uh, airlines say we're no longer going to fly over the airspace. He was asked about his wife, and his response was, was quite pointed, I think. Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, he said that his wife is also, of course, the first lady of Ukraine, that his family is always with him uh, and that his wife is obviously always uh, with him inside uh, the, the country as well. And so certainly um, he was definitely trying to display what he's what he's really been trying to display since the beginning of all this is to uh, remain calm and and to carry on, uh, really. And, and you know, obviously in, in, in certain instances that has brought him at odds also. Uh, with the U.S. and some with some other Western nations as well, for for exactly the reasons that you were just mentioning, for the fact that they were pulling out and have been pulling out diplomatic personnel. You know, in, in many cases, uh, only keeping the core sort of diplomatic staff in Kiev and, and other cities uh, as well. But he is one who has always projected the fact that he believes that now is not the moment to panic for obviously various reasons. I mean, some of those reasons are also the fact that all of this has already caused massive economic issues for Ukraine. Um, just, uh, you know, just businesses that are obviously uh, very concerned uh, and, and people not coming to Ukraine. It certainly makes it very difficult for him uh, to, uh, to to keep all of that together. So he's been trying to portray that call. He has done that again. And then at the same time, he criticized business people and others who are leaving Ukraine and saying that that's something that simply isn't uh, acceptable and that people need, need to look at that, especially business people where he said, look, your staff needs you in, uh, in Ukraine as well. So I did think that that certainly was sort of him showing that, that he's remaining calm and him really trying to display some leadership skills uh, as well, Julia. Yes. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you. Fred Plekman and Sam Kali there, both. Thank you. More First Move after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and to recap news this hour. Ukraine's president says his country still wants to join NATO, but it's not, quote, the absolute goal. He spoke at a press conference with the German chancellor just moments ago. Joining us now, Ambassador William Taylor. He was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and is now vice president of the Strategic Stability and Security at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Ambassador Taylor, fantastic to have you with us. I'm sure you were watching that press conference closely. What did you make of some of the comments that were made there? So, Julia, it, it appears that what's going on in Moscow is very interesting as well in response to what's going on in Kyiv. Mm. In Kyiv, um, we see uh, President Zelensky holding firm, showing a resolute face, appearing there with allies, um, the chancellor. Um, uh, others have come through to show support for President Zelensky and standing firm and I would say staring down President Putin. In Moscow, there is now more talk of negotiation. And in Moscow, of course, President Putin has the decision to make between invasion and negotiation. And it looks like they're more inclined. This may be too soon to say, Julia, but I will go out here. I think that uh, the negotiations are looking more likely than invasion at this point. And that's obviously a very good thing. 
do you think that's a change literally in the last 24 hours? Because what we saw over the weekend was the United States almost seemingly releasing intelligence the moment they got it, suggesting that an invasion could happen at any moment. There was a real imminency and a fear over the weekend. Suddenly, fast forward to this morning and you have comments from uh, the foreign minister of Russia saying there remains a chance for diplomatic dialogue with the West and he recommends that continues. It feels like a change. So both messages have been important, Julia. I think this is uh, is key. Both the calm, determination, resolve that President Zelensky has projected, as well as the sense of urgency um, that is coming from international community, including the United States, um, which has led to a strong response and support for the Ukrainian military. That is to to, to deter. Mr. Putin from making a decision on invasion. And yes, I think uh, the signals coming out or the the indications coming out from Moscow this morning that they are interested in negotiations um, is something that we've been looking for for some time and now we're starting to see it. You know, it's fascinating that, again, NATO membership came up in this press conference. And obviously there was concern over the weekend after comments from um, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK that perhaps they would reconsider. That was welcomed by Russia in comments this morning. Um, do you think actually inadvertently Russia's been surprised by the degree of unity from NATO allies, from the United States, from Europe, in the show of diplomacy that we've seen? He sort of inadvertently created what he didn't want to see in the first place. And that is actually greater alignment than he realised. I think you're exactly right. I think President Putin is surprised um, at the unity um, of the NATO alliance, but he's also surprised at the determination of President Zelensky and President Biden not to blink. They are holding firm. Um, And you mentioned that uh, comment by the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to London. Um, I talked to Ambassador Prostyko, um, and uh, he did not mean to indicate that there was any rethinking of that decision. Um, he's a very professional, and and it is very clear that Ukraine is a sovereign nation. Ukraine, as a sovereign nation, gets to decide whether or not to apply to NATO. Then there's a whole process for to take that forward. But that's it's a it's a sovereign decision of Ukraine, and that's what Ambassador Prosyko uh, said as well. And that's why context is always important. And we're great to have you. Um, glad to have you with us, Ambassador, to, to get that very quickly. I know you were also in Kiev. Last weekend, you spoke to President Zelensky. You were speaking to a lot of people there. There's a lot of alarmism and rhetoric flying around. Just to get your sense of what you're hearing there and, and the perspective there and the, the calm that the, the president portrayed in that press conference, is that real beneath the surface? Yeah, I think it is real. Um, you heard it again this morning. Uh, you, you hear it from people. It, there's obviously a concern. There's obviously a, a, a worry among Ukrainians that they've got 130, 140, 150,000 Russians on their border, on three of their four borders, three and a half, really. Um, so that so that there is a there is a concern, and people are taking it seriously. You see all these reports of territorial defense trainings of civilians um, who are out there getting ready to, to resist the Russian forces should they should they come into their cities and towns. So there is a concern out there, but the calm you also see. And Ukrainians, we have to remember, have been living with this, with this threat from Russia since 2014 when Russia invaded in the first place.
Mm. But to your point, I think this is very different. This now feels very different from 2014, and that's the important point too. Ambassador, great to have you with us. Ambassador Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and vice president at the U.S. Institute of Peace. So thank you, as always. Thank you, Julia. Okay, to other news now. And in Hong Kong, COVID cases are rising to record levels. The financial hub topped 2,000 new infections in a single day for the first time since the pandemic started. Hospitals and quarantine centres are maxing out and officials are weighing up tougher action. As Christy Lustout reports. Here in Hong Kong, the healthcare system is overwhelmed as the city is hit with a record surge in COVID-19 infection. On Monday, Hong Kong reported over 2,000 new daily COVID-19 cases and 4,500 more suspected cases. This is a significant rise from the previous day. Hospital beds for COVID patients are at 90% occupancy. Isolation facilities are nearing their maximum. After a government meeting between Hong Kong and mainland Chinese officials in Shenzhen at the weekend, The Hong Kong government said that Beijing would help with testing, treatment and quarantine capacity. In fact, task forces have been announced, but it's not clear when Hong Kong will approve the funding or how quickly help will arrive. Late on Sunday, the Hong Kong government said that children from age three would be able to get vaccinated starting on Tuesday. And this follows the death of a four-year-old who had tested preliminary positive for COVID-19. Now, officials also warned that food supplies may be disrupted after truck drivers responsible for transporting food into the city tested positive. Hong Kong and mainland China are among the few places in the world with this so-called dynamic zero COVID strategy, a policy designed to suppress every outbreak. But according to Hong Kong's number two official, John Lee, there are so far no plans to lock down the city. Obviously, how things are run and practiced in the mainland uh, may have to be modified a little bit if it is to be applied in Hong Kong. Uh, That modification may or may not uh, affect the effectiveness uh, or efficiency of the whole uh, arrangement. So there may be uh, positive areas that uh, some of the um, strengths in the system uh, can be maintained by dividing uh, responsibilities and functions uh, between what are those that are best to be taken in Hong Kong and what are those that may uh, best be done uh, as background support in the mainland. Tough measures are already in place. Among them, schools are closed. Gyms and entertainment venues are closed. There's no dine-in service after 6 p.m. There's a ban on social gatherings of more than two people. There are also the strict quarantines and border restrictions in place. Two years into this pandemic in Hong Kong and its dynamic zero COVID policy are being put to the test as COVID-19 cases here exponentially rise. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And more first move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday, and we've got uh, a mixed open with tech now posting gains amid hopes for a lessening of tensions between Russia and the West. We did pair back some of the earlier losses pre-market after, as we've mentioned, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov suggested that he sees a path forward for diplomatic talks. Now, some airlines in the meantime are suspending flights to Ukraine as a precautionary measure as fears of a Russian invasion grew over the weekend. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, talk us through who's doing what and also who isn't making adjustments at this stage too. 
Yes, because at this stage, it is the very beginnings, it feels like, mm. just minor disruption, really. Over the weekend, the Netherlands issued a travel warning. Uh, that was the government. And so we had KLM, a Dutch airline, uh, saying that they were going to stop flying to Ukraine on Saturday. They usually have two flights to Kiev um, each day. Today, Norwegian says it's now avoiding flying over Ukrainian airspace. That will impact just a small number of routes. But Lufthansa and some of the other airlines we've uh, reached out to today say they're just monitoring the situation and looking at the departure and arrivals boards uh, at Kiev Airport. We still have Ryanair, Wizz Air, Czech, Air Baltic, Austrian, Qatar, Turkish Airlines. Most airlines still flying in and out of the country. But of course, that can change very quickly depending on the situation on the ground. And Ukraine is very concerned about the situation. Over the weekend, they said that they're actually going to take on some financial commitments to cover insurance companies and leasing companies, some of which have already started to suspend services uh, over the weekend. Julia? Yeah, I mean, that's appalling. Some flights may not be arriving, though, but financial assistance hopefully is very soon. The ambassadors of the EU endorsing a proposal to provide around 1.2 billion euros, I believe. How quickly might we see that come through? What, what more steps are required? That was very interesting because the French president, Emmanuel Macron, actually sort of mentioned this uh, figure last week. And then today the EU leaders have endorsed it. It still needs to go through the parliament and council, though. Uh, the G7 and the IMF have also said today that they stand ready to provide further financial assistance. They say they've already offered over $48 billion worth of support to Ukraine since the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014. All of the international bodies uh, essentially are ready with help and help will be given as and when it is needed. But at this stage, it's really trying to bolster, I think, the confidence, particularly for investors. And that's so important for Ukraine, given the huge capital outflows they're already seeing. Julia. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that update there. And that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And First Move will be back tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.